Saturday night in the med hall. I wanted to start by telling uh, a story. And this is something that uh, I observed a number of months ago. I was in an airport on my way either to or from Spirit Rock. And I had one of those airport experiences. So I was supposed to go to a particular gate and catch a flight. And when I went to that gate, only a little bit early, uh, it was already packed with people. There was a previous flight that was supposed to have left, and it didn't. So uh, they had already been there, you know, an hour, an hour and a half waiting. And all the chairs were taken. And now all the people who were supposed to be t uh, catching the next flight out of that gate were arriving. So we were all kind of, you know, standing around and we were, um, you know, had our carry-on luggage and our lattes and <laughs> the newspapers and everything that uh, we had planned to uh, use to while away the time uh, before we got on the plane. But there was no place to sit. So it's all stacked up there. And you know how it is at gates. Usually people don't talk to each other very much unless they're traveling together. You know, it's a little bit like uh, being on the subway or something. You know, you don't want to start talking to somebody and then find out you can't get away from them or, <laughs> or something. So, you know, there's usually not that much interaction between people at airports. So we're all standing around waiting and getting a little bit grumpy. And then I start to notice uh, among the people who were waiting to catch the flight uh, were uh, a man and his wife and a small boy who was maybe hmm, 18 months to two years old. And they were traveling with one of those strollers that you, you know, fold up and the stewardess has to find a place to jam it <laughs> uh, as they board the plane. And the little boy was not happy at this point, right? So it's the, the dreaded toddler at the airport scenario unfolding. So he's starting to get fussy and cry. He's crabby. Uh, you know, the mother tries to work with him. He doesn't like it. Um, so then the father swings into action. Well, maybe, you know, dad can settle him down. So dad picks him up, uh, you know, and tries to walk around with him. And the kid doesn't like that. So then he puts the kid down and grabs his hand and he's trying to walk around with him. And the little boy doesn't like that. And then they get out a bottle and they uh, sit down with him and they try to feed him. Well, he doesn't like that. And uh, <clears throat> now he's starting to cry and kick and he <laughs> he's getting really upset. So everybody at the gate now is like mesmerized, watching this scene as it, as it unfolds, you know. And I, I'm just imagining the, the parents are starting to feel the pressure of, <laughs> you know, being the center of the stage while uh, the thing that everybody watches uh, to see what will happen. And um, so the dad picks up the, uh, the little boy and tries to put him on his shoulders. Well, you know, that, that's a failure too. And then he grabs the, the stroller and he 
you know, lets the little boy walk ahead of him, kind of pushing the stroller, you know, thinking, well, maybe he'll get into walking with the stroller. And he, he doesn't like that. He throws himself down on the ground and he starts to scream and yell. And his father picks him up and he goes over to the stroller and he grabs the handle of the stroller and he's like, the little boy, he's bouncing it up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, screaming. And everybody's riveted to this. And then finally a man who's uh, standing next to me says, for all of us, let it out, let it all out. <laughs> and we all laugh, you know? And the reason we all laughed was we knew exactly what it felt like. And in fact, there was probably more than one or two people in the group where if we could get away with it, you know, we might be doing something very similar. So how do we know, how, how was it possible that we understood what this kid was experiencing? Well, you know, in some basic way, we're all the same, right? We all have uh, the same palette of human emotions, physical sensations, and we can recognize that in other people. You know, this is the basis for um, us having some connection with and understanding of each other. You know, we typically think of ourselves as being uh, separate individuals. And while it's very true that we're individuals and all of us are unique, what's less accurate is to think that we're separate. You know, when you think about it, it's very remarkable that I'm able to sit up here at the front of the room you know, there's no direct physical connection between us, right? I can experience you all as individuals. You're experiencing me, but there are, you know, distances, physical distances uh, between us. I'm sitting up here, you know, making a certain set of sounds that appear as uh, meanings and perceptions in your mind and that carry information back and forth. You know, so how separate are we really? There's obviously some sort of field of connection that exists between us and among us, or we would never be able to communicate in this kind of way. We would have no basis for any kind of experience of each other. When the, the Buddha was talking about um, us learning mindfulness and kind of directing our mindfulness to particular fields of experience, one of the refrains that he uses is uh, that we should know, for instance, um, the arising of an emotion internally within ourselves as well as externally, meaning in others that that is part of the practice, learning to connect with and identify with the physical states, the emotional states, the mental states of others. That's a mindfulness practice. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a very interesting word to describe the fact of our human interconnection, and he calls it interbeing. 
interbeing, that we s somehow overlap. And the Zen people will say, well, it's not two. They don't say exactly what it is, but it's not two. So this field of connect connectedness, our ability to recognize emotions in each other, is really the source of our ability to experience compassion or the desire to relieve the suffering of other people, just in the same way that we understand what it feels like to be sad or angry or fearful or upset or to experience physical suffering or to experience the whole range of mental torments. We recognize that other people can have those same kind of experiences and when they do have them, we resonate with that in some sort of way. You know, there's reason to think that this is even kind of biologically primed, that we're biologically set up for this, you know? Um, some of the neurobiological research has discovered something called mirror neurons, where if we observe something doing, someone doing, for instance, a particular uh, activity or having a particular emotion, sections of our own brain actually uh, that parallel to that actually light up. So we're not two. And so just in the same way that we want to relieve our own suffering or bring an end to our own suffering, it's very natural for us to want to respond to the suffering of others and to support the end of that because we are experiencing their suffering. It's not just that they're suffering, we're experiencing it. So there's a natural turning of our hearts towards uh, people in distress. Now, this tendency of us to turn towards people in distress can be a bit problematic for us humans. Sometimes it's difficult to hold our own experience, let alone that of someone else. And in fact, I think it's uh, probably true that we're able to hold the suffering of other people to the extent that we're able to hold and work our own. And that has a lot of implications. So for instance, We often really want to or need to help other people, but if there's a big mismatch between our strength and stability and the demands of that situation, it can create a troublesome circumstance for us. You know, it can be difficult to be open-hearted and stay in balance, and so if our stability of mind if our presence of mind, if our emotional resilience isn't strong enough to hold the situation, in the process of trying to assist others, we can really kind of go off the deep end ourselves, right? And 
you know, we've all probably done this or at least seen, have seen others do this. Um, you know, this can be unskillful and even self-destructive if we're not uh, aware. So a friend of mine once said to me, uh, was telling me about a long-term relationship she was in with um, someone who was a substance abuser. And so she had, you know, it had eventually ended, but uh, her, her summary uh, of the effect of this relationship was, well, I have to say that over time, he got a little better, but I got a lot worse, right? So that was some belated wisdom on her part about what happens if we bend over too far uh, in a way that isn't wise and try to take responsibility uh, for things that we don't control or shouldn't attempt to control. So, you know, codependence uh, is uh, a word that's sometimes used for these tendencies that we might have, and overreaching, and it's really not wise. When this happens, you know, we're not uh, clearly seeing the situation, and we're trying to uh, change things more uh, than we're actually in a position to uh, change. We're doing too much. It's not wise. So another way this compassion thing can be problematic for us humans is kind of on the, the other end of the spectrum, where, for instance, we're aware of suffering, or at least somewhat aware of suffering, but we feel uh, completely overwhelmed by it, uh, destabilized by it, and you know, in reaction to that feeling of mismatch between the suffering that we're seeing and our own capacities, we just kind of turn away from it, cut it off completely, uh, and close down. So realizing that we don't have the capacity to, f to fix it, we withdraw from the situation and turn away completely. So What's a human to do? So the question is, how can we learn to be present with the suffering of other people? And the answer seems to be by learning how to work with our own suffering. And how do we learn how to do that? Well, we're here in the lab right now. So we're learning to see the arising of suffering, and we're learning to open to it, and we're learning how to intersect with it in a way that's skillful, that releases it. So by learning how to touch our own suffering and learning how to work with it, we're really strengthening our capacity to be there for other people and to be helpful <clears throat> to them in a way that isn't self-destructive or deluded. We're learning <clears throat> about equanimity and how to have a mind that's stable at the same time that it's open and connected and responsive to what 
is experienced. So one thing that you can take from this is that it's really a very great blessing to be here on retreat and be experiencing difficulty. I think Rebecca uh, the other night was uh, recited a, a prayer from a Tibetan practitioner that basically asked for enough difficulty that he would be able to learn and progress in his understanding for the benefit of all beings. So he clearly saw that it's in learning to open to these difficulties with compassion for ourselves that we begin the process of developing the skill to help other people. So I'm going to tell you a practice story now. And th this is a story um, from my own practice. And the first time I ever came to IMS which was quite a while ago. For those of you who are old timers here, this is like back in the days when uh, they had stacks of old army surplus blankets in the back there. So a while ago. So at the time I came here, I was really in searching mode. I had been working for probably about 10 years with various forms of violence. So working with people who were victims of violence and then working uh, in a community organizing capacity to uh, interrupt uh, a particular uh, form of violence that was happening uh, in my community. So you know, what tends to happen over time um, with people who work in those kinds of roles, of course, is that in the process of doing this kind of work, trying to be of help to others, you are yourself, because we're so interrelated and because we see the experience of others and resonate with it, you actually become um, very affected by what you're seeing. And when I was doing this particular kind of work, there wasn't really a lot of sophistication about this. I mean, now it's called something like uh, uh, vicarious victimization. <laughs> but back then, we just called it work. <laughs> so over a period of time, you know, uh, working with what I worked with and seeing what I saw, many very deep, kinds of questions came up for me, like, whoa, what is, what is going on around here? How can people be like this with each other? Uh, you know, how can people who have had these experiences come back and uh, be fully healed? What's, what kind of culture do we live in where this kind of thing is permitted? What kind of education are, are we uh, giving to children that they think this behavior is all right? You know, what kind of... Um, uh, values do we have that we don't interrupt this process and uh, clearly uh, uh, state that it's unacceptable. So many of these things came up for me. 
And I also had, at that period, uh, a significant loss uh, in my own life and a lot of grief coming from it. So uh, when I came here for the what was a three-month retreat, um, um, there was a giant dukkha ball. <laughs> giant dukkha ball. And, you know, the Buddha says, uh, when there is suffering, it ripens either into despair or search. So I would say I had some of both. But the despair wasn't that much fun, so I decided the search would be a better option. And maybe some of you can relate to that. So I really wanted to see where this Dharma Trail thing would go if I played it out completely and followed it to the end. And so I came determined to give it as full an effort as I could. And uh, when I ch checked in here, um, one of the people who was doing registration then said to me, well, this retreat's only going to be 10 times longer than any other retreat you've ever done. <laughs> I, th I think they've revised the intake process now. I don't think they necessarily, yeah. we hope. Okay. And so, you know, I really found the retreat to be very difficult. Okay, because I, ca you know, I came in with a lot of uh, this mental suffering, as well as, you know, like a deep impetus to find out, find out, find out for myself. I really wanted to find out if it, if it worked. But, you know, I had a mind filled with anger, and then there was sadness and despair and grief, and, you know, I, I experienced probably every form of aversion you can imagine. So if, if you have aversion issues, feel free to sign up with me because I know aversion. So, you know, the, the days here were really, really, really long. And you know it was hard, it was difficult to keep going. It really it really was, you know. And you know the walking periods in particular really stirred up a lot of resistance. You know, I, I can remember there used to be a sidewalk outside here, and I can remember you know being out there for, you know another forty five minute or hour walking period, and you know. I, another 45 minutes or hour lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Okay. I didn't, you know, really have a context for it, but I knew it was getting in the way of thinking. <laughs> you know, and I like to think. I mean, you know, I, I kind of like that monkey mind swinging from thought to thought, you know, happily through the jungle or unhappily through the jungle, but there's a certain freedom in going from branch to branch. So, you know, it was getting in my way. So, you know, the first month in particular was very, very difficult. And there was a lot of grief. 
And in fact, for the first three weeks, I cried every sitting period. Okay. Is that a record? Can anybody here beat that so far? Okay. You know, and I, I tried to cry quietly. I really did. And I, you know, I was, I was probably fairly successful with that, except the one time where I could feel I was, I was really going to lose it. It was a huge wave. And I got up in the middle of a sitting and went out that back door and went out on the lawn there and sobbed my heart out for 20 minutes. So my first three-month retreat. So, you know, at some point along the line here, I realized, okay, motivation, motivation. Motivation has got to be an important part of this because uh, I'm not going for fun here because I have no fun. This is not pleasant. This is not enjoyable. This is only month one. There's two more to go, right? I told all my friends I was going to do it which was probably a good thing because otherwise I probably would have been tempted to turn around and go home. So I needed to find motivation. And I started reflecting on the sources of my own suffering. You know, what I knew was suffering, what I had noticed in the world, what I had noticed in me. And the amount of sorrow and the amount of pain and all the different kinds of pain and all the different places in the world. And so it got really big. You know, there was a very deep realization that, you know, there is a seam of pain that runs through the world. And I found, interestingly enough, that that was actually not um, something that discouraged me. It actually, in a way, encouraged me to continue. Because with that was an understanding that I wasn't the only one that was kind of feeling like this. A lot of what I was seeing, the dukkha that I was seeing, was not particularly personal. It certainly didn't affect me alone. I mean, sure, you know, home base, it's always easiest to see where the suffering was. But it was very clear to me, this certainly wasn't unique to me. You know, this was true for many people. This was true for all of us on some level. And so, you know, it wasn't... It started to feel like not that special anymore, my pain, not that special. And Stephen Levine talks about um, this kind of change in understanding that can come about when we really examine things, when it starts to seem that it's not so much my pain as it is the pain, <laughs> the pain. There's the pain, and we each have some of the pain. It's not mine, but it's our common inheritance. It's part of being a human being. And with that, I started to feel not so alone in it, not that isolated. 
I saw that I wasn't practicing alone, that there were other people here who were also practicing and in their own way were touching into the same kind of thing. And that all the people out there who weren't practicing, who had never heard the Dharma, were also suffering and in their own way, wisely or in a deluded fashion, were also looking for a way to end suffering. We all had uh, the problem, we all had the pain, we all had the dukkha, and it really wasn't that personal anymore. And that's when I think I learned for the first time, or I noticed for the first time, that it was really important to have a motivation for practice that's as big as the difficulty you face. And I talked a little bit about that last week. You know, we need, we need something that's important enough to us and big enough to keep us going when it gets difficult. And so when I joined or thought of joining my effort to that of other people, and thought of it in terms of potential benefit to other people, it really opened the door for me to continue on. So the joining of my practice with the intention to be of benefit to these others who were also suffering really energized um, and enlivened my effort to continue on. And it was really uh, a change when the, this motivation became conscious, more conscious. It was there at the beginning too, but I was so lost in my dukkha bubble, it wasn't necessarily predominant. But at a certain point it became predominant, and that's when things shifted. So, you know, at this point it wasn't all about me and my aching knees and my anger and my story. It was about all of us because there were plenty of people who had aching knees and a lot worse and angry minds and a lot worse. So I really saw my virya uh, strengthened at this point, my energy and my courage to continue to practice. And I, I got this idea this is one of these Dharma ideas, creative Dharma ideas. I'm sure it's not original to me in any kind of way, but it was news to me at the time. Um, I got the idea of dedicating each period of practice, the merit of each period of practice, to a very specific group of people. And I would um, pick a group of people at the beginning of a practice period and kind of, you know, get that clear how I was going to dedicate the merit at the end. And I would find that it really um, gave me an extra push to be willing to be focused and present and to continue on through whatever came up during the practice period. So some of the groups that came up for me were, for instance, uh, for humans who work for the protection of animals. 
for those who are dying alone, for those who are in jail for the sake of human rights, for those working to end hunger, for women working to end violence against women and children, to those suffering in the cause of peace, to those working in nursing homes. And you can probably think of some of those too. You know, for those doing cancer research, for those receiving chemotherapy, you know, for single mothers with no money, for fathers separated from their children. <laughs> There's no shortage of them. So this was part of what spurred me on then. And then I, I came up with another idea in regard to working with the breath. And that was, you know, the Tibetans have this uh, uh, idea uh, about hidden teachings called uh, terma, I believe is what they call it. And the idea is that these teachings are, you know, hidden, kind of hidden by past masters uh, in the mind stream of individuals and at a certain point in the future they will open and you know the teaching will arise in the world and um, I didn't really know about that idea at the time but something sort of like it came up in uh, my own Dharma uh, creative imagination and I started to watch the, the breath very closely and suggested to myself that the breath might hold the key to some important learning, a terma, we'll call it, or a secret teaching, which would benefit others. So kind of like, you know, an embedded thing in there, but you have to be present for it in order to activate it or to touch it. And so, it, working with the breath in this way, you know, I wasn't like looking for the terma, looking for the message in the bottle. It wasn't like that. But, but, I, did, but I did have the sense that, you know, there's something in, about this breath watching that makes it a foundational tool. You know, there's something there that we learn if we watch closely. Not in a strained way, not at all, in a very soft, interested, receptive way. There's something there that teaches us on a very deep level. And by working with my breath in this particular kind of way, I noticed that my mind became very soft and receptive, present, interested, you know, knowing that a new understanding might come forward, an experience not yet known. And this is partly why I was talking last Saturday about the importance of practicing in a very open-ended way in our practice. We think we know the breath. We don't. 
It's not the same. When we lose interest, we, we're shorthanding it. When we're truly alive with it, it's end, endlessly changing and vital, alive. And letting the breath become alive. I found that my practice became open-ended and very fluid. So as the retreat went on after these weeks of doing this, equanimity really deepened. You know, the, the mind became a lot less reactive. No more crying in the med hall. You know, um, a lot of the uh, clouds of aversion uh, dissipated. It would still come sometimes. Sometimes it would come strongly. Sometimes it would come a little bit. But it wasn't a problem anymore. It was just like a sound or a physical sensation. So, you know, feeling more and more connected to and accepting of whatever arose resulted in things opening up. And then reality sort of became very matter of fact. This is how it is right now. Oh, this is how it is right now. Stabbing pain. Stabbing, stabbing. Experience arises and passes away according to causes and conditions. Oh, good concentration last sitting, not much concentration this sitting. Oh, causes and conditions. All conditioned things are impermanent. And a new, a new noticing. This is safe. There is no harm here. This is safe. There is no harm here. This unpleasant experience will pass away. This pleasant experience will pass away. And I began to see the freedom that came with being able to let go and let go completely. And with this came a further uh, reduction of resistance and a deepening of equanimity. Which was a good thing because then it was the end of the retreat. And with the end of the retreat came going home and finding out that uh, my uh, job and my income as well as my daily routine, was no longer available. <laughs> Surprise! So, you know, I watched the fear arise in the mind, you know, the anxiety arise in the mind, and watched it move through this state of deep equanimity that had developed over the period of the retreat. And then I... Uh, had time on my hands. So I thought, okay, this would be a great time to do some volunteer work. And uh, so I called up and volunteered at a local uh, agency that was providing uh, therapeutic touch kind of uh, support for people with AIDS. And at the time, 
that uh, this project was going on, uh, AIDS basically meant you were going to die, and you were going to die quite soon, probably, and uh, it and it was not going to be a, a good way to go. So when I call up the volunteer coordinator for this, I, you know, they do an intake interview to make, you know, try to make sure that you're going to be okay to work in these kinds of situations and not cause harm. And she said, well, you know, it, it, is there any kind of uh, person that you wouldn't want to work with? And I thought about that, and I said, well, I wouldn't want to work with somebody who um, has unrealistic expectations about what this could do for them. You know, like thinks like a, you know, somebody might be able to heal them. And, uh, you know, I, prob I wouldn't want to work with somebody who, uh, you know, is completely isolated, where I would be like the only person around offering support because I thought, well, you know, that, that would probably be getting in too deep uh, in the situation. So, so maybe a week or so passes, and then I get a call from the project coordinator, and she said, I just got a phone call from uh, some nurses at the intensive care ward at Harborview. And they're looking for somebody to go over and work with somebody. And um, I thought, okay, oh, intensive care. Hmm, first, you know, first time out of the gate, intensive care, all right. And uh, I said, well, you know, what, what's the situation? And she said, well, um, this is a, a, a man who um, comes from a fundamentalist family. His father's a fundamentalist minister. And so his family uh, has completely cut him off. No support. And um, he's also agoraphobic. So he's lived like a very isolated life. And so he has no uh, basis of, of support. Let's see, what was, the, what was my criteria again? <laughs> All right. um, and uh, the reason that uh, you know, he's, he's calling you know, and wanting some help is that because he was raised in this fundamentalist family, he has, um, you know, he remembers you know, uh, Bible stories of healing by laying on of hands. <laughs> And so, you know, he'd like somebody to come and do the laying on of hands for him. And she said, and the nurses, you know, the nurses really want somebody to come because um, he wants to be, I can't remember what they call it, I think they call it code red or something. Anyway, he had, you know, he was clearly uh, going to die, but he had, um, told the hospital he wanted everything possible done to prolong his life. So I thought, isn't this the guy that I just said <laughs> that I wouldn't work with? Right? So, of course, I had to. Right? 
so I, I got on my little uh, motorbike and motored over and went up to intensive care and the nurses, you know, a, a nurse met me and uh, it was one of those interesting meetings where, you know, the, the nurse uh, was in a little state of agitation and uh, I could tell when she, uh, you know, turned to me and we were kind of talking, she was like checking me out like, wow, you know, is this like a, a wacky person here that's going to make it worse or, you know, can I, you know, maybe this person can help, uh, you know, take some of this pressure off the situation and so this um, man can do something other than uh, fight his demise every step of the way. So in those days, um, there were a lot of protocols taken with people who had AIDS. So, uh, you know, you had to like put on the gown and there was like gloves and everything and, you know, they, because they didn't understand the relative degree of contagiousness to it. So, so I walked into the, the room where this uh, man was who called and there was an extremely thin man uh, lying on the bed wearing just pajama bottoms and he had an oxygen mask on and uh, was covered with carposis, sarcoma, right? And you could tell by like how he was breathing that, you know, there was like, there was like a panic in it. It's like a panic. And um, my heart just completely opened. And my sense of self completely disappeared. And some of, uh, you know, the reluctance or like the, oh, I'm not so sure that was there when I was thinking about whether, you know, this was like a good thing to do, completely disappeared. And any sense of myself as separate completely disappeared. Any sense of myself as self was gone. So the experience was more of very deep equanimity and compassion, and that's all. So I talked with this, this man for a while, and then, you know, I started doing my thing, you know, walked around and, you know, touched him in various ways. And um, my subjective experience was that the room was filled with light. And, you know, when I was working with his feet, you know, I could tell he was going to die soon because you could almost feel like the energy was starting to leave. Like the lower part of the body, there was like very little, little energy that you could feel with it. So as, as I worked, he, he fell asleep. He seemed to relax and he fell asleep. And then uh, at the end, I went and sat down and, and talked with him a while. And I said, so, you know, how are you doing? What's, what are you experiencing? And he said, um, I'm, af I'm afraid I'm going to die and I'm not ready. And through my mind went the thought of what I had experienced in this meditation hall, all the hours of sitting, all the hours of sitting, 
with the difficulties and what I had learned from that experience of immersion in my own dukkha. And I said, well, you know, um, sometimes when things are happening that we don't like, you know, we think the best thing to do with that is to, you know, try to keep it out and close off from it. But sometimes, you know, if we can just relax and let things alone, it's better. You know, and he kind of took that in. You know, and he asked me to come again. I left, you know, took off the space suit and went home. And that night, uh, when I went to sleep, I had a very interesting experience. You know, there's a, a jhana in insight practice uh, called dissolution, where the experience is of experience just falling away, falling away, falling away, passing away, passing away. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and had a very, very strong experience of this type. You know, coming right out of sleep, this falling away, falling away, falling away. And kind of had an intuitive sense that this was somehow connected um, with this guy in intensive care. And so I didn't really sleep uh, much that night at all. But in the next, the next morning, I got a phone call from the project coordinator, and she said, um, I just wanted to let you know that Harborview called. And um, after you left, um, you know, the person you saw took off all the codes uh, in other words, he reversed his decision to, you know, try to keep it going, try to keep it going. And he died last night, very peacefully. So, you know, the conclusion that I, I came to from that experience and from a couple of others um, that were also powerful that happened within six months of finishing that retreat was this stuff really works. You know, this is very powerful medicine that's available here. And one of the deep learnings that I had from this was, you know, there, there really is no separation between us. And if we can, in the process of learning to hold our own pain and suffering, <clears throat> develop um, equanimity, develop the capacity to be steady and open um, in mind, that capacity can be a very, very great gift uh, to those around us, those people we know and those people we don't know. So, this could be a wise reflection for you. You know, it's really true that um, you're not practicing just for yourself, because you don't exist in that isolated way. 
you know, what, what you uh, can develop and is what you can offer and what will affect um, people that you connect with directly and people at several different degrees of separation. So don't uh, underestimate your potential and don't underestimate your impact. You know, find, find the bodhisattva mind and a motivation that is large enough to support your deepest aspirations. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.